Hey, I, I just have to say, can we give it up for Del Poor and those wizards in the set shop? I mean, this is made out of styrofoam. And if you're as close as I am, you can look in. It looks like it was just pulled off Talladega. It, they are just amazing down there. I went to Dell some months ago and said, can you build me a stock car? I, when I came here 31 years ago from Texas, uh, all I knew about was football because that's all we talked about in Texas. A ball's not a ball unless it has corners. But things have changed, and I came to Kansas, and I got introduced to basketball and learned to love basketball. But to be honest with you, Auto racing wasn't something that I got into much when I was a kid, but in my early 30s, I started getting a lot of invitations to speak in the southeastern United States, and that is what introduced me to NASCAR, because they take NASCAR really serious in the southeast, and these last 30 years plus that I've been speaking and doing conferences in that part of the world, I've got a real good introduction, and some of my best friends are NASCAR addicts. I learned several things about NASCAR. People that love NASCAR, they have a driver they love and a driver they hate. And you will always know the driver they love because when you go in their living room, they have the picture of the driver they love right next to Jesus. <laughs> That's right, you think I'm kidding. Um, and, but the reason why I thought about doing a NASCAR theme um, series or just an automobile theme series is this is the beginning of the new year and our, our theme is shift. And I know this is simplistic and a lot of you know a whole lot about automotive engineering, but let me just go to the basics, the very simple basics of why your automobile needs to shift. If you left this parking lot today, if you're at New Spring Campus, whether you're in, whether you're in a stock car or whether you're in a Ford, your transmission needs to be able to shift. What, what, what will happen is if you can't shift out of low gear is that as you accelerate and as you build up momentum, your engine will begin to rev real hard, but you won't be going much faster, and you'll burn up an, a huge amount of fuel, and beyond that, your engine will heat up, and it won't be long before your engine will burn out. And as I think about that picture, I think about a lot of people that I know. In fact, to be honest with you, sometimes I think about myself, because I think in life, we sort of get stuck in low gear, and we try harder, but the harder we try and the higher we rev, at the end of the day, we're not going a lot faster. We're burning up a lot of fuel. If you want to you want the clarity for that metaphor. We're burning up years and resources, and then we're about that close to burnout. And so today, I want to talk to us about the importance of shifting, because I feel like as we start 2017, many of us need a shift. It's not necessarily that we're bad people. We're not, and it's not that we're not trying. It's just that we need a shift in our lives. Now, Today, let me just start with the most basic thing, and I'm going to ask you a question. And then, no, hear me out, because at first this question could be insulting. But here's my question for you. Do you believe in God? Now, the reason I ask that question is I, I'm going to say in just a moment it comes down to how we believe in God. But I'm aware of the fact that a lot of people will sample New Spring who don't necessarily know what they believe about God. And you could be here today and say, Mark, I'm an agnostic. I'm not really sure. I think there may be a God. I think there might not be a God. I don't really know. Could be somebody here and you say, Mark, I've worked it out, and I just don't think that there is a God. So I'm respectful if you've come to that conclusion after serious study. But if I'm guessing that we're a fair cross-sampling of Americans, and if you look at the polls, most Americans do believe in God. So if I ask you the question, do you believe in God, the likelihood is that most of you are going to say, yes, I believe in God. But how do you believe in God? See, I think there are a couple of ways in which people believe in God. The first view of God is that God is powerful, somewhat benevolent, but remote and distant. 
Now, the issue with that view of God is that it's half right because God is powerful and he is benevolent, but the idea that he's remote and distant distant can give us problems. The other way of looking at God is that, yes, indeed, he is powerful and he's remote, but he is my helper and he's right here. I think about David. You know, King David wrote a lot of the songs in the Bible. And one of the songs that he wrote is among my favorites, and it's Psalm 3. Um, There are songs in the book of Psalms that are what we call lament songs, or we might call them blues songs. My favorite blues song is Psalm 3. David is in a really bad place in his life because he's made some really, really poor choices. If you know the Bible, he's He slept with a woman that wasn't his wife, tried to cover it up, and ultimately her husband died as a result of David's misbehavior. And God sort of like backs off and lets David experience the impact of his own choices. And one of those impacts was his son, Absalom, tried to take the kingdom away from him, and David had to run for his life with his followers. And so David is in a terrible spot. He's running for his life. And beyond that, there are people who are saying about David that God will not help him anymore because of the choices that he's made. And during that season, when David is running for his life and yet worried about his son Absalom, if David's armies prevail, will his son be killed? David pins Psalm 3. And in that psalm, David tells us what it's like to believe in a God who is powerful and benevolent and right here. David says in verse 3, you, O Lord, are a shield for me, and I love this, the one who lifts up my head. If you have kids, or even if you can remember being a kid, do you ever see an image in your mind of a kid who's like had something really wrong happen that day, maybe a bad grade, maybe bullying, you know, maybe just the kid's upset about something. And you ever see that look that a kid gets when he just, like, her head just sinks down into her chest? Just that. Do you ever see a parent just gently reach down and take the chin and lift it up? That sign, that signal, that gesture is a gesture of hope. It is the parent's way of saying, I know this is a bad day, but the days are going to be better. And that's how David saw God. He said, you are the God who lifts up my head. I'm just asking you, how do you believe in God? Do you have view number one, that God is powerful and benevolent, but remote and distant? Or do you have view number two, that God is powerful and benevolent, and he's my helper, and he's right here? Let me tell you when it's going to matter the most. It's going to matter in the God-sized stuff, the stuff that is too big for you. Because see, here's the thing. If you're able to handle life, which a lot of us are right now, I mean, it's just that we don't, I mean, we have issues, but we don't have anything that's just blowing up our lives, then you can have view number one, and you can sort of rock along. If you're paying your bills, and you have a job, and your family's basically generally okay, then you can get by with believing that God is a powerful, benevolent God who is distant and remote, and from time to time you intersect him, whether it's in a worship service or maybe just a time that you happen to think about God. But in all of our lives, we are going to have these moments that are too big for you. We're going to have moments that no matter how hard you try and no no matter how high your engine revs, you're not going to be able to solve the problem. And it's in those moments that if you have view number one, of God, that you're going to do one of two things. If you have view number one, that God is powerful, um, benevolent, but distant and remote, and you run into God-sized stuff, the first thing that you might do is you might 
check out. Or there's another word we have for it. You might settle. At one time, you believed that God had a great destiny for your life, but you've ran into something that is too big for you, and in your mind, God is remote and distant, so consequently, you're looking at your own resources, and you're saying, no matter how hard I try, I can't pull this off. I can't make the impossible possible. And so you basically say, I'm going to have to settle for less. Now, honestly, between the two, that's the better decision. It's not a good decision, but it's better than the other decision because the other decision says, I'm running to stuff that is too big for me and I can't handle it. And, but because God is remote and distant, I'm going to have to figure out some way to make the impossible possible. Now, that's where we get into real trouble, as we're going to see in just a few moments. That's when we get into situations like saying, I know he's not the right person for me, but I am going to make him the right person for me. I know that my wife is not what I would like for her to be. I can't, but I'm going to make her the person who is right for me. I know that I can't pull this off, but I'm, see, here's the thing, and, 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 and work with me on this. Whenever we're in this second situation of believing that God is powerful and benevolent, but remote and distant, and we can't make the God things happen, but we're gonna try anyway, what always gets sacrificed is truth. For any of us who's trying to make the impossible possible, look into the situation somewhere and there's truth that's being sacrificed. Either you're not being honest with yourself or not being honest with others. And so today I just wanna talk about shifting. I wanna talk about how that we can shift and go into another gear because what we're going to discover in this talk today is that what needs to change is not necessarily our view of ourselves, but our view of God. Well, let's start with this. There are three facts that I want to begin with, and here they are, and we'll just sort of give them a NASCAR vibe. Um, here's the first one. God is looking for people to race on his team. One of the first things I learned about NASCAR is that if you watch a race and there are 30 cars in the race, a lot of those cars are parts of teams. Sometimes that, a team may have three cars in a particular race like Gibbs Racing and Team Penske and Hendrick Motorsports. I mean, these are teams. And so God is looking for people to drive on his team. That's true. He's just looking for drivers. That's the first thing that I want you to see as a fact. Number two, God wants to put you under contract. When you look throughout the history, God has dealt with his people on a contract basis. Or actually, there's a better word. God wants to put you in a covenant relationship. In other words, when you come to God and you have a relationship with him, God wants to put you in a relationship that you cannot lose. That's very important to me because I look at my flawed nature and I juxtapose it against God's greatness and I think, what happens if I blow it up? So that's the deal. God is looking for people to drive on his team. Number two, God is looking for people that he can put under contract. Here's the best thing. God is willing to take drivers who have issues. So I love, those are the three facts. We'll just start with those. God is looking for people who will drive on his team. God wants to put them under contract. And then on top of that, God is willing to have people on his team who have issues. With that in mind, I want to take you to our first story, Genesis chapter 17. And let me just follow flight plan with you before I get into this. In all five of our talks this week, we're going to, or this, this series, we're going to be looking at people who God shifted to a new level. But in each case, he changed the name to reflect the difference of their life after that point. In Genesis chapter 17, we see that God is looking this time for a couple. He wants a husband and wife. And the reason he wants a husband and wife is he wants them to be the beginning of a nation. You ever like go to spring parade of homes or fall parade of homes? 
and you walk through the model houses, and what you see, what you experience, is you see a builder who is trying to show you what that building group can do. And you walk through the house, and you see the touches, and you see the workmanship. That's just the builder's way of selling you a home. Well, when God chose Israel, you need to understand the reason why he had a chosen people, and by the way, they are still his chosen people. The reason why God did it, he wanted to show the entire world what he could do with a nation that is willing to follow him. But before God can have a nation, he's got to start out with a couple. And so he wants this couple. Now, not only does he want this couple to begin a nation, he wants this couple ultimately to begin a nation that out of which will come a savior who will pay the price for the sins of the whole world and give us a new opportunity to have a relationship with God. So he's looking for a husband and wife. You know, if I were looking for a husband and wife to start, if I were God looking for a husband and wife to start a nation, I would try to like find the best scenario I could find. Maybe the most religious group, maybe the group that's like closest to God already. And I'd pick my couple out of that. It's so interesting that God doesn't do things the way we do. The first thing that we notice about this couple that God picks is they came out of a bad place. The Bible just says they came out of Ur of the Chaldees. Let me fill you in a little bit. These people worship the moon. And on top of that, they were polytheistic. And there's no, there's no indication that Abraham and Sarah were ever part of this. But the, the form of worship that the Canaanites experienced involved male and female prostitution. We do know that Abraham and Sarah at one point in their life had worshiped idols. So they came out of a really bad place. The second thing that we learn about Abram and Sarah, and it might have been the reason why we wouldn't have picked them, is they're, they've got some real issues going on in their life. Let me tell you about Abram. You know, we call him Abraham because we know him by the name God ultimately changed him to. Well, let me tell you about Abram. Um, Abram, his name means, let's see if I can give this a modern spin. It means number one dad. Do you ever like see these cheesy aprons that, that fathers get on Father's Day that say number one? If you got one, it's not cheesy. Uh, <laughs> you know, an apron that says number one dad or, or, or maybe it's a shirt that says, you know, the number one dad. That's what Abram means. Big daddy. I'm the daddy. That's Abram's name. So by the time God calls him, he's been in business for a long time, and he's a fairly successful businessman. And I sort of imagine these business deals that go down when people meet Abram, and it's like, hi, my name's Abdul. What's your name? Uh, my name is Big Daddy. Um, what is your name again? Um, exalted Father. Oh, really? Number one dad. You, you Man, family must be big to you. How many kids do you have? None. Oh, yeah, you're the daddy, and you don't have any kids? Yeah. Hey, isn't it true that if you have something going on in your life that tends to embarrass you most of the time, that it will mess with you? And I think it messed with Abram. I mean, all the time he had to introduce himself. I'm the daddy. How many kids? None. Wife pregnant? No. Now, Sarai's name, on the other hand, and there's no way of getting around this, her name means Miss Difficult. I'm telling you, if there's a beauty pageant, 2000 BC, Sarah's got Miss Difficult. Now, I want to tell you, I think there's a reason why Sarah might have been a difficult person because back in those days, if couples were unable to have children, which was hugely important, it's important now, but it was really important then, people were evaluated by this. When people looked at Abram and said, hey, what's your name? Big Daddy, have any kids? No. Then the next thing they would do is turn and look at Sarah like, what's wrong with you? Work with me. Nothing will make you difficult like feeling the pressure to make the impossible happen.
Some of us are difficult. And people think we're difficult. And we're sad about the fact that people think we're difficult. But when you start unpacking that, chances are you're going to discover that somewhere you feel the pressure to make the impossible possible. And I think that's what was going on with Sarah. And they'd, they'd lived quite a few years before God called them. They were in what we would call middle age. And God comes along and he picks people who come from a bad place and he picks people with issues. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the church of Jesus Christ. Because God is still doing that today. He is still picking people who come from a bad place, and he is picking people who have issues. Listen, here's the thing. If you come into New Spring Church, I don't want to leave you with the impression that we're a, bunch of, a whole bunch of people who figured it out. We are people who've come out of bad places. Some of us aren't still out of those bad places. We have come from bad places, and we have issues. I just want you to know that. See, here's the thing. When you come out of a bad place and you have issues, what does that add up to? Baggage. Baggage. You can't see it today. We didn't walk in with baggage, not visibly, not physically, but every one of us here walked in with baggage because we've all come from our own bad places and we all have our issues. And because of that, we have baggage. Aren't you glad to know that when God went looking for a couple to shift into a whole new gear, he was willing to take a couple who came from a bad place and people who had issues? And that's the, pickle, the couple that he, that he picked, okay? Now, here's the thing that we want to learn when we start thinking about Abraham and Sarai. First of all, God chose them. And then secondly, he put them under contract. Now, you can read the terms of this contract in Genesis chapter 12, and there are five aspects to this contract that God put Abram and Sarah under. He said to them, number one, I will bless you. Now, I love the second one. I will make you a blessing. See, that's great. I mean, it's one thing to be blessed of God. It's something else for God to make us a blessing. God said, I will bless those who help you, and I will hurt those who hurt you. And out of you, the whole world is going to be blessed. God is saying, I will make the whole world better off because of you. Now, that's a really great blessing. And what we're going to discover at the end of this message is this covenant is still made with us today. We'll read a verse in a few moments. So when you look at that, that, that incredible promise that God is making to Abram, I will bless you, I will be, make you a blessing, I will bless those who bless you, I will hurt those who hurt you, and you'll be a blessing to the entire world. What does God ask from Abram? Two things. God says to Abraham, I want you to leave, and I want you to trust me. Now, here's the cool thing, 2017, January. God still asks for those two things. God is saying, I know you came from a bad place, I want you to leave it, and I want you to trust me. I mean, think about all the verses in the Bible that tell us that everlasting life is in believing in Jesus. God is still looking for people who will leave their old way of life and to trust him. So they start out on their journey. They do. I mean, you read about this in Genesis chapter 12. Big Daddy and Miss Difficult. They leave. They go. And they start following God. But New Spring, here is the issue. They have view number one of God. They believe that God is powerful. They believe that he's benevolent, that he's good. But they also think that he's remote and distant. And, and they're not blaming Abram and Sarah because they didn't have the Bible. They don't have Genesis. They just feel like every once in a while they intersect God. God just shows up every few years. 
And because that they have this view of God that's remote and distant, they, they do what we talked about a few moments ago. They begin to feel the pressure to make the impossible possible. Let me just give you a couple of illustrations out of this. Um, Abram is going through Canaan with Sarah, and the pickings get slim. And so Abram says, well, we need to go down to Egypt. So they go down to Egypt, but the problem is they're all by themselves. They're in a very different culture. And Sarai, who is middle-aged at this point, Abram says to her, you know what? You're hot. That's the translation. You're really, really hot. By the way, that's really cool. I mean, you may be missed difficult, but if you're middle-aged and you're hot, that's saying something. And Abram says, when we go down to Egypt, listen, don't tell everybody that you're my wife. Tell them that you are my sister. Now, this is the guy who the Bible calls the father of faith, Hebrews 11, Abram. And isn't it great to know that even the people who were legendary still had their moments of choking? And so Abram said to Sarah, listen, when we go down there, I don't want them to kill me, brave man. I don't want them to kill me. I want you to tell them that you are my sister. Well, they were from a blended family. Technically, I guess that was true. But remember, whenever you try to make the impossible possible and you believe that God is distant, what I said a few moments ago, what will always get victimized is truth. So they go down to Egypt, and so everybody looks at, boy, she is something to look at. And so, you know, they tell the Pharaoh, the leader of the country, wow, there's a woman you ought to check out having in your harem because she's really beautiful. And Pharaoh said, I don't know, she may be married. Check into it. And they go ask. And Abraham says, no, no, she's my sister. Oh, she's not married. So Pharaoh brings Sarai into his house to be his wife. And on top of that, you talk about You talk about crazy. Pharaoh starts giving all these gifts to Abraham because he wants to get in good. Can you imagine you have turned your wife over to another man and this man is giving you gifts because you're working under the premise that she's your sister, but all the time she's Abram's wife. Man, that could have blown up in a major league way. I read this in Hebrew yesterday. It's really interesting because the Bible says God sent awful diseases on Pharaoh's house. I have my suspicions what they were, but I'll keep them to myself. I know what God did on other times when stuff was like this. So anyway, Pharaoh, they were polytheistic. They believed if anything bad happened, it was the gods were angry. So Pharaoh was like checking out, well, what what could gods be angry with? They said, well, what's new? Well, we got a new woman in the harem. Well, go check it out with her. And so they go ask Sarah, and they say, is there an issue here? And Sarah says, yeah, really, I'm his wife and not his sister. We're sort of, we're from a blended family, but really, I'm his wife. And Pharaoh really, I mean, he kicks Abram and Sarah out of the country. Can you imagine what that's like? I mean, this is the couple that God has picked, and they're getting kicked out. Well, another, another illustration of trying to make the impossible possible. Um, God has said to Abram and Sarah, you're going to be the father of a great nation. Well, it's hard to be the father of a great nation if you don't have one kid. And so month after month goes by and the pregnancy test comes back the same. Sarah's not pregnant. So Sarah, feeling the pressure of doing the impossible, says to Abram one day, hey, listen, there's a, there's a process here in our culture where a woman can't have a baby. Uh, the husband can sleep with one of her servants, and if the servant has a baby, then it's considered the couple's baby. Maybe that's how God wants to work this out. Why don't you sleep with my servant? Husbands, how many of you have learned that when your wife says, go ahead and do it, it doesn't always mean you have permission. You know, go, go ahead and buy that boat. 
you better not. <laughs> and Sarah's like feeling the pressure, just sleep with my servant. Abraham's like, well, okay. <laughs> and the servant gets pregnant. And on top of that, you know, Sarah can be difficult. We know that. And she's probably been difficult on Hagar. And now Hagar's pregnant and Sarah can't get pregnant. And so Hagar begins to diss Sarah. And Sarah gets upset about it. And she goes to Abraham and says, it's all your fault. You made this mess. And it's all your fault. Abraham's like, you know how a typical man, oh, it's not mine. She belongs, she's your servant. You just, hey, not me. I, I didn't do this. This is all up to you. And Sarah begins to make things really difficult on Hagar. Listen, guys, if you're feeling the pressure to make God-sized stuff happen, it will mess with you, and it messed with Abram and Sarah. Now, here's what we don't usually see. Let me, can I just say something? This doesn't have anything to do with this talk. When you have the Old Testament in your hands, it covers 4,000 years. When you have the New Testament in your hands, it covers basically 60 years. Every once in a while, people will say, God seems like much more merciful God in the New Testament than the Old Testament. Well, that's because you're looking at basically 60 years. Oftentimes, God is very merciful in the Old Testament, and a lot of years, goes by before, years go by before God deals with things. And by this time, 30 years go by. Abram and Sarah, they have left their country. They are following God. But the problem is they have viewpoint number one of God. And here's the thing. 30 years go by, and they're no further down the road. They still have their issues. They still haven't done what God wanted them to do. And beyond that, now they have a whole lot more baggage. How many of us here today are watching online or watching on television? You've been following God for a long time. And you, you try, and you believe God, but years have gone by, and you're pretty much where you were. And the issues that you have when you begin to follow Jesus, you still have a lot of them. And now, like Abram and Sarah, years have gone by, and you're beginning to crumble under the weight of destiny. Yeah, I think if we could have interviewed Abram and Sarah at that point, 30 years having gone by, no child, no kid, no further down the road, revving high, but burning out. I think we would have said, Abram, Sarah, um, how do you assess this? And I think they would have just said, well, we tried. We really tried. We believed in God. But I guess we just didn't have enough. Don't know what the right stuff is, but I guess we just didn't have enough. We just... We came up short. Who am I talking to today? You're a God follower, and years have gone by, and you haven't made much progress, and you're revving high, and you still have your baggage. And you know how Abraham and Sarah feel. It's like, I, I guess I just don't have what it takes. I don't have enough. Well, here we go. Genesis chapter 17, because this is where our text is. God shows up, and the Bible tells us that, that, well, it just simply says this. Genesis 17, 1, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him saying, you're fired. Is that what God says? No. God shows up, and the Lord says to him, I am God Almighty. 
live in my presence, and be devout. Now, let me tell you what I love about this, because this is the first time that God ever introduces himself with this name. And perhaps you may have heard an old song with this name, or maybe you've heard this name in church. God says, I am El Shaddai. Do you know what El Shaddai means? God says, I am the God who is enough. If Abraham and Sarah would have said, we don't have enough, God shows up and says, hey, you were never expected to have enough. You were never expected to be enough. I am the God who is enough. For anybody here who feels like a failure following God, you need to understand that the God you serve is a great God. And he's not just benevolent and powerful, but distant and remote. He is benevolent and powerful, and he's here in your life, and he's ready to help you. He is the God who is enough. See, that's what I need to feel today. Because so often I look at the scenarios in my life that I would like to change. I would like to change people. I would like to change me. I would like to change circumstances. And God is saying, Mark, that's too big for you. I am the God who is enough. And then the second thing that God says to Abraham is, there there are a couple things that you need to do. The first one that God says to Abraham is live before me. What does that mean? Maybe this illustration will help. For those of you who are parents who have small kids, like, like a three-year-old, do you ever like, or you can remember being the three-year-old, do you ever watch like a three-year-old or a four-year-old, maybe a small kid, do something wrong and he's oblivious to the fact that his parents are watching him and he thinks he's getting by with something, but all the time the parent is like standing there watching him? And, you know, for a parent, that makes you feel disappointed, doesn't it? And it's like, not only am I disappointed that my kid is doing something deceptive, I'm disappointed that my kid's oblivious to the fact that I'm watching him. Well, that's what God is saying to Abraham. God is saying, Abraham, I'm like watching you all the time, and you need to start living your life like I'm actually there. What would happen if Jesus came to your house today, rang your doorbell and said, hey, I'd like to stay with you for like six weeks? That'd be so awesome, wouldn't it? I mean, I have so many questions. I'd like to just spend the first day asking Jesus all these questions that I have. But let's just say he stayed there. And so now I've got Jesus in my house. And so it's like, okay, well, let's sit down and just watch some TV. It's like, I don't know. Maybe we shouldn't watch that. Or the phone rings. It's like, oh, I don't know. I don't think I should date him if Jesus is coming along. I don't think that would be a good idea. Or, you know, firing up the computer. I don't know that I should go to that site. I I don't know that I should buy this. See, that's the weird thing. If Jesus were living with us all the time, we would be thinking about the decisions that we make in light of his presence. Well, the thing is, duh, he's there. And so that's what God is saying to Abraham is, look, 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 Abraham, I am El Shaddai. I'm the God who's enough. But here's what you need to do. You need to like live before me. It's not like I'm gone and I show up every once in a while. I'm here all the time. Live before me. And then look at the text one more time if you have Genesis 17 before you. He said, and this is a bad translation, be devout. Let me, let me give it to you in real terms. God is saying, deal with the elephant in the room. I'm a Christ follower, and what I know from my life and what I know from being a pastor for 40 years, I've come to believe that most of us who are God followers know what our issue with God is. We just don't deal with it. 
And I think Abraham's issue with God was this thing of just not living before God and trying to make the impossible possible. And God is saying, Abraham, look, look, I'm right here. I'm so ready to be the God who's enough. But you're going to have to start living your life like I'm watching you. And you're going to have to see me as the God who loves you and the God who cares about you. God is wanting Abram to join Team El Shaddai. As I close out this talk, who am I talking to? You're revving hard. You're burning up fuel and resources. But you're where you were a long time ago. And you want 2017 to be different. Well, I just want to encourage you. You don't need to redefine yourself. You just need a pure definition of God. God is right there. He's ready to work. He's ready to work in your marriage. He's ready to work with your kids. He's ready to work in your career. He's ready to work in all these scenarios that are too big for you. But the thing that's got to change is we have to start living before him and deal with the elephant in the room. And if we do, God will, God will work in our lives. Do you realize that the same deal, you can say, well, Mark, that's Abraham and Sarah. Well, the same deal that God made to Abraham and Sarah, he's making to you. This is Galatians 3, verse 6. The scriptures say that God accepted Abraham because Abraham had faith. And so you should understand that everyone who has faith is a child of Abraham. This means that everyone who has faith will share in the blessings that were given to Abraham because of your faith. This is not just a deal for Abraham. It's not just a contract for Abraham. This is a contract that God has for you, that he will bless you, that he will make you a blessing, that he will bless those who bless you, that he will harm those who harm you, and that he will make you a blessing throughout the entire world. God's offering you the same deal. It's for you. Now, I should tell you this, in that meeting that God had with Abraham, God said to Abraham, there's, a, there's something we need to deal with here. Um, that name thing, that big daddy thing, that's not working. Um, exalted father, and Abram's like, yeah, I, I knew that had to go. That big daddy thing, and it's too big for me. And God says, we're going to change your name from Abram to Abraham, which means father of many. Oh, I wasn't expecting that. I mean, I knew I was going to like downshift here. I mean, but God's like, no, no, no. I'm not going to just call you Abram anymore, exalted father. You're going to be father of multitudes. And Sarah, you're not going to be Miss Difficult anymore. You're going to be Sarah, which means princess. Listen, guys, I'm not trying to make too much out of this. I'm just saying this is in the Bible, and it's here for us today, that God is ready to be the God who is enough. And if you are willing to trust him to be enough and not try to be enough on your own and either settle or check out or try to make the impossible possible and create all kinds of new baggage, if you're ready to just say, okay, my job is to live before God and my job is to deal with the elephant in my own room, if I'm willing to do that, then God is willing to work in my life in ways that he sees fit. But I want to leave you with one of my favorite verses in the Bible because here's the deal. All of us have an idea of what God might be able to do in our lives. In Ephesians chapter 3, verse 20, the Bible says, Now unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask. Can you imagine a God who can do that? I mean, think about the things you would like to ask God for, and yet the Bible says God is able to do more than we can possibly ask or imagine. That is how powerful our God is. That's how enough he is. He is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask 
or think according to his power that is at work in us. Not our power, but his power. And I love this. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations. That's our generation. Forever and ever. How many need a shift today? You need to just resign from ruling the universe and turn the God-sized stuff over to God and start living before God and dealing with the elephant in the room and seeing God as the God who is right here. I know I'm in overtime today, but I want to talk to you about the contract that God wants to have with you. The contract, we call it salvation. We might call it eternal life, whatever you want to call it. It's just that God offers you. Here's a deal. Here's a contract on the table for you. You ever, you ever how many of you, you don't have to raise your hand. How many of you like signed a contract? And yet someone just puts a contract on the desk for you and you have it there and you pick up the pen and you sign. I have. God has a contract on the table right now. And in this contract, he has some promises that he makes to you that he will forgive you of your sin, all sins, that he will adopt you into his family, he will give you everlasting life. And this has all been paid for. Isn't that good? Because if you buy a car, you gotta pay, right? But I'm talking about this is a contract that's being put on the table by God and the payment's already been made. Jesus paid for your sins when he died on the cross. That's why we use the cross as a symbol. And God has a contract on the table for you. And God is saying, all I want you to do is to be willing to leave your old way of life and trust me. And God offers you everlasting life. Anybody here today, you want to take God up on his contract? Well, you don't sign, but we'll pray, okay? We'll just tell God yes. I want to pray a prayer, and this is a prayer that tells God yes. And if you want to join me, you can pray it with me. And then if you don't, you can think about it. But right now, I'm going to pray this prayer. I'll pray it slowly so you can decide if you want to own the words. Ready? Here we go. Dear God, I know I'm a sinner. I have my issues. But I believe you love me anyway. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe that Jesus rose from the grave. I trust you in all these things. I'm not saying I understand them. I just trust that you're right. I ask you to forgive me and to make me God's child. In Jesus' name, amen. If you just prayed that prayer with me, I have a gift I want to give you. It's got a new Bible and a book I wrote because you might not understand everything about your decision, but if you pray with me, please come and get this. Go to guest services, either outside the South Auditorium or the North Auditorium, and all you got to do is say, I pray with Mark, and they will give this to you. Thank you guys so much. Look forward to seeing you next week, and it's part two of Shift.